Hello, Regeneration. Nice to be back here. Thank you, Pastor Bernard, for sharing last week. Uh, you are a really good friend. This is our last message in 1 John. Uh, John's letter has been really, really rich, and in the closing of this letter, it, uh, it's going to continue to be so. We'll be heading into 2 John uh, next, so please read ahead, study, meditate on that letter. It's a, it's a really quick read. It's one chapter, but, but it's very rich. Um, something that John is bringing up here, uh, the, the Christian faith has, has always been under attack. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it reads this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So it started way back then, Genesis 3. Now skip down to verse 15, Genesis 3. This is what is known as the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. This is what it reads. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity between the evil one and humankind. Satan had already had this enmity, this hatred, this ill will towards Eve. But now this antagonism would be mutual between the people of God and Satan. Then comes this phrase in the latter part of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which prophesies the, the ultimate demise of Satan and that the conflict is ultimately between Satan and the seed of the woman. This is referencing Jesus Christ, and it's prophetic of Jesus' victory over Satan. You shall bruise his heel, meaning you'll wound Jesus, but Jesus will rid of Satan. He will bruise your head. This prophecy is referencing the virgin birth of the Messiah, her offspring, not his offspring. And this prophecy is pointing to redemption. That even though Adam and Eve sinned and, and everyone after them was born with this sin nature, there was a redemptive plan that was greater than being born innocent. God's eternal plan wasn't to just create persons of innocence, but to create persons redeemed. A redeemed person has agency. Agency in the process of relationship with God. If we were all born innocent, where then is our part in the relationship with God? But God gifts us this dignity to have relationship with Him. And redemption is only possible when we have something to be redeemed from. The attack we've experienced throughout the history of humanity has been a spiritual one. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now why bring this up? Because back in Genesis 3, we read that the evil one is more crafty. The evils that we experience in this world are deeper than just physical, emotional, social. 
all these things, all these ills, all these evils that we see and that we hear and that we feel all around us are more than just physical, emotional, and social. And this is a warning to the church for us not to be fooled by those things. That all of those evils tie to the spiritual. And Satan is elated when we're distracted from this. Wounding us enough that most, if not all, of our attention is focused on those physical, social, emotional evils. Those states of our lives, believing that we can do something about all of those things, which we can, but when we neglect the spiritual battle and we just focus on those other things, we make ourselves powerless, powerless against the dark spiritual forces that have haunted us since the beginning of humanity. You see that the evil one does not care one iota if we heal the sick. He does not care if we comfort the hurting. He does not care if we solve the social injustices of our world as long as all of those who do good are still eternally lost without Jesus. He does not care how much good we do because he is still one over those people even though he ultimately loses, but so have they. And there will be many casualties. There will be many spiritual casualties. Many everlasting casualties. And for those of us who have been given spiritual eyes to see from the Holy Spirit, we can see this. We know this. The proof is all around us. And the more we focus on those physical, emotional, social ills, and not the spiritual there is a tendency to drift away from the word of God. A tendency to lose confidence in the truth of the scriptures and, and question the faith of those who went before us as well as those all around us. Those who have already gone this way have justified why they've chosen to go in this direction and the sad thing is that they then mislead others to follow them not to see things spiritually. Those who are susceptible to being misled, which I think is most of us, we need the continual counsel, guidance, direction from the word of God for the Bible to lead us to assurance and certainty of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, just because John wrote this 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that this is irrelevant for us today. What John dealt with back then was very similar to the context we're dealing with today in that Christian faith has always been under attack. Nothing has changed in regard to this spiritual warfare that we experience. People were uncertain of their beliefs just as they are of those beliefs today. People in the church back then were, were leaving the church just as they're leaving the church today. People back then were unsettled with what was happening around them just as we are experiencing today. And the results are all the same. And that people are spiritually paralyzed in their service to the Lord Jesus Christ. So today is not too different from 2,000 years ago. 
It looks different. The characters are different. But it's the same disbelief in the authority, reality, and validity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. From a couple of weeks ago, we know that faith isn't a matter of intellect because there was so much evidence to all of those who were present at the baptism of Jesus and at the crucifixion of Jesus. Tens of thousands of people within that three-year ministry, maybe hundreds of thousands because millions poured into Jerusalem during the Passover. Yet still so many didn't believe. And there are so much for Christians to be assured of and certain about, and yet so many still walk away from God. And this is John's aim in these concluding verses of this letter. John wants us to be assured, certain, confident of our faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the first thing he wants us to have the utmost confidence in is our eternal life, which is the very purpose as to why he wrote this letter, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything he has written in this letter points to this verse, pointing to this gracious, generous gift of God that cannot be earned but is given to us by having faith in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. The purpose in this letter is the same as the purpose of the Gospel of John when John wrote this. John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. How is this to be done? How are we to know we have eternal life? Well, the first thing is we need to hear. We need to hear the good news. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. After hearing this good news, we need to believe it. We need to trust that it is true. Hearing the word of God gives us ways to, to believe in the word of Christ. Belief then leads to living out this good news, which then leads us to knowing, knowing confidently that we have eternal life. See, the Christian faith can't be compartmentalized, which a lot of people do. They just kind of do like the church thing and then everything else in their life is outside of that. Whether it's work or recreation or relationships, whatever it is. But that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is all of you. And this confidence we have in Jesus isn't an arrogant one. It is a, a humble confidence Sometimes we misrepresent God. And sometimes there are these phrases out there that we use that can be misinterpreted as arrogant. There, there are people who think Christians are arrogant when we say that Jesus is the only way. For us to say that with confidence, that we know Jesus to be the way to eternal life, there are some who view that as arrogance. But our confidence is not arrogance. It is humble. Think about this. If the process is first to hear, then believe, then live, and then the last thing is to know this, 
then there are obviously opportunities for us to first doubt. The opportunities to doubt are just as many as to trust. So we as Christians aren't arrogant about our faith. We're not just jumping from hearing to knowing. This is humble. And part of how we come to confidently know is because we've gone through these steps before knowing. That we've gone through these steps of opportunities of doubt before we confidently know that we have eternal life. Then comes this second confidence we have, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We have confidence in prayer. So first we have confidence in eternal life, then we have confidence in prayer. We have confidence in our communication with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's very, very natural for a, a child to address their parents. It's really normal for a child's first words to be mama or dada or some variation of that to acknowledge mother and father. Why? Because it's a, a sign of this very intimate relationship between a parent and child. As parents, we are so ready to hear the cries of our children. How much more so for our Heavenly Father when we cry out to Him. One of the signs of an intimate relationship with God lies in our communication with God. It's in our prayers. The unbeliever doesn't have that same intimate relationship with God. God is not their Heavenly Father and they are not His children. There's, there's no confidence in their prayers to call God Dad. You know, I've been with many people who, who pray. And those who pray who don't believe in God, they address God as God. And I've never heard an unbeliever address God as Father. I've never heard that. A sign of genuine faith in God is that you intimately talk with Him. And how do you intimately talk to God if you don't know God? You, you can't do that, which is why we share the gospel. We evangelize. We make the introduction to God so that people can hear. Then believe, then live, and then confidently know so that they can confidently pray. We pray in reverence. We pray in submission. While at the same time, we are uninhibited because he's our dad. When you're talking with your children, your children talk to you, aren't they kind of inhibited? They kind of just talk to you the way they talk to you. And it's just like our re worship. It's, it's reverent. It's submissive. And yet it still is inhibited to, to show our intimate relationship with God as our dad. What can we ask God? Anything. You can say anything to God. But take note that the confidence we have toward him is asking in accordance to his will. Verse 14. We don't impose our will on God, 
but our prayers are to be in submission to his will. The most confident prayers that we can ever pray to God are biblical prayers. For example, Acts chapter 3, verse 25, it reads this, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Not some of the families, all of the families. So in praying for the entire world to be evangelized is a biblical prayer. A biblical prayer to be prayed with absolute confidence. God has already made this known to us through his word that that's his will. It's according to his will for all to hear the name of Jesus. And we can confidently pray to God to make us pure, holy, useful. That's a prayer according to the scriptures. There's, there's no doubt for God to answer that prayer because it's according to his will. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We can be confident in God answering our prayers when we pray biblically. We can ask God for anything, but it doesn't mean that, that what we ask for is in, in accordance to his will. What do we pray for? What's on God's heart? And we can find out in our Bibles. And when we pray these prayers, He delivers on those prayers. God answers all prayers. He can answer no. But the biblical prayers are always yes. The prayers in accordance to His will are always yes. The thing is, is that it's not always right away that it's not always even in our lifetime. But confidently, we can know that God answers yes to the prayers in accordance to his word and accordance to his will. Verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. When we come to verses 16 and 17, John addresses a particular concern. It's about who we pray for and, and, and not pray for, and what sins don't lead to death and what sins do lead to death. And you'll notice that verses 14 and 15 address prayers of petition. They're asking God for anything according to his will. When we get to verses 16 and 17, this changes to prayers of intercession, asking God for things on behalf of others, interceding for them. Now these two verses prescribe to us how we are to deal with sin in the church. 
when we become aware of someone committing sin, and our first response isn't to talk to each other about that. The first response is to talk to God about it. That God is the one who answers prayer and is, is who grants life to those whom we pray for. Those, those who are backslidden in their sins, we, we pray for them so that they may have life. But what about this sin that leads to death? It seems to me that the sin that leads to death is likened to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, and Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Let's read those verses. First in Matthew. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now to Mark. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is speaking about a person who is hostile, calloused, hard-hearted, unaffected by the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is a person rebelling against the truth. And it's not the size of the sin that determines whether someone is forgiven. It's the attitude, it's their posture, it's their heart, it's the disposition within that sinner that determines the forgiveness. If the sinner rejects the cleansing and the forgiveness in the only solution offered, Jesus Christ, there's nothing else to offer. John has already written to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have the source of forgiveness, the source of cleansing. So it seems to me that the sin that leads to death is tied to the attitude, the posture, the heart, the disposition of the person who is sinning. There are believers who struggle with this, wondering if they've committed this sin that leads to death, and I'll try to put you at ease today. If you have a great concern that you have committed this unforgivable sin, and it just bothers you, then you haven't committed it. Because sinners who have committed this unpardonable sin, they don't care. They don't care if they have or haven't. And so this is what John is pointing out, that, that they don't hear. They're not interested. They don't care about the only place to receive forgiveness, which is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this is what leads them to their death. Now, John is not forbidding prayer for those sinners, but he doesn't seem to be endorsing prayer for them either. He does seem to be encouraging prayers for those others, though for those who have backslidden and for them to be restored and reunited with the church family. So today, does anyone like that come in mind for you today? And, and make a note of that person for yourself to, to pray for them. Who do you need to get on your face in prayer for? To fast and pray for? And this is one of the prayers we are to pray as children of God. Praying in accordance to his word and to his will that we can be confident in these types of prayers. 
Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 18 is a verse about God's power. And it's a start of verses that begin with, we know. And here's the first we know in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, of course, we all are capable of sinning. But the Christian doesn't continually sin. It's not a habit. Why not? Because those of us born of God are protected by Jesus Christ. The incarnate God born of a virgin who protects us. We're we're only able to keep God's commands as we're kept by Jesus. Now we're not safe from temptation. We're always facing temptation. We know that the evil one is more crafty. But we have victory in Jesus Christ, our protector. The dangerous thing about the evil one is that we give him too much power. Or that we go the other way and we don't think of him at all. But those who give him too much power, we allow him to overwhelm us. And we, and we just kind of like think he's hiding behind every rock. But then there's the other side of it where we don't give him credit at all in, in how dark he really is. And I think our culture actually falls prey to that idea of Satan. Our cultural context doesn't realize that he is at work. And there's a serious struggle with sin here. But we can be confident in Jesus Christ to deliver us from the evil. John chapter 10, starting in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We can be confident as believers in Jesus Christ that we can't be possessed by Satan. Nor does he have power over us. Verse 18, 1 John chapter 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we can be confident in God's power, that the evil one cannot touch those born of God. And then the second we know in verse 19. We know that we are from God. That we can be confident in our identity. We know that we are from God. Identity is huge in our culture. There are huge clashes about identity regarding gender and race and size of people. All sorts of things that that people identify with. And all the different things that, that have made people feel excluded despite having good family and good friends. And there are people at our church who have a ton of crisis in regards to their identity. People who don't know where they fit, who don't know who they are, who don't know where they belong. But know this. If you are in Jesus Christ, you know you are a child of God, that you belong to God. Which brings us to the third we know. First, let's uh, go to verse 20 and then we'll circle back to the latter part of verse 19. And so here's the third we know. Verse 20. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. The truth in verse 20 has been addressed to our understanding. To know this truth in our mind, our heart, our will. Understanding this truth is not simply just knowing theology or doctrine, which are very important. Understanding this truth is not simply knowing how to utilize our logic and our reasoning. Understanding this truth is about hearing, communicating, praying, believing, trusting, living, loving, meeting, fellowshipping, knowing in an intimate way Jesus Christ. Do you have this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ today? Have you genuinely met Jesus Christ? Do you confidently know you are from God? Do you know who you are? Do you know where you stand today? Now let's circle back to verse 19, that the latter part of that. And the world lies in the power of the evil one. This is the Christian's perspective of the world. It's 19b. And so for anyone who's ever wondered why the world is the way it is, this is why. This is what the Bible says. People, I've heard time and time again, blame God, saying, you know, if God were true, how can this happen? But the biblical truth is this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is what the scriptures say. So stop blaming God for all that's wrong with the world. Rather than blaming him, run to him before it's too late. Yet so many are busy doing whatever they are doing with no idea that the evil one is behind this darkness that we're experiencing the things that we see and hear and feel. And that we can actually come to the light in Jesus Christ for him to show us in his word something like this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So does it surprise anybody? We're experiencing all the injustice that we experience. Now people are so preoccupied with all that is happening in the world without any concern with ultimate truth that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one has a lot of people fooled in our world. He has so many people fighting each other instead of knowing where we are from and the victory has already been won in Jesus Christ. We need to get our perspectives on right. We walk into a world that lies in the power of the evil one. And there are many people out there that don't know what is happening around them or what is happening to them. And our call isn't to run away from it or to be indifferent to the world. We are to be compassionately involved in this. Now we've been reading from Jude as our benediction for the entire study of 1 John. And it reads this starting in verse 20. But you, beloved, 
building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is how we are to live in this world. We, we see the need and then we minister to it. We take part in the world, but not in its sin not in its idolatry take a look at verse 21 little children keep yourselves from idols and that's how John ends first John our world has so many idols our world has so many substitutes for God which is an idol an idol is anything that occupies the rightful place of God, and it's a bad imitation for reality. John is exhorting believers not to abandon reality, what's really there. He's addressing the confidence we are to have in our responsibility as born-again believers in Jesus Christ to not be fooled by the illusion of these idols in this world. We need to keep ourselves away from those idols, which is incompatible with God. The key to living as God intends is to confidently know our identity in Christ and to live in that reality. This is how we are to face our world in Jesus Christ. That we are confident in our eternal life. That we are confident in our prayers. That we are confident in his power. And we are confident in our identity as a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be able to see clearly that we would be able to hear you clearly, Lord. Lord, would you please grow in confidence in ourselves that identity within us, in your power, in our communication with you, confident in that gift you've given us in eternal life. Lord, thank you for your servant, John. Thank you for this truth. And as we go into another letter of John in 2 John, how he encourages us to walk in truth. Lord, help us to focus on that, to not be pulled by things that may distract us, knowing that the evil one is more crafty. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a time for communion, a time of remembrance for us. And so if you have your communion elements, I encourage you to grab that and take out the bread symbolizing the body of Christ. The gift he gave us as Redeemer. That we weren't born innocent to where we don't have any part in our relationship with Christ, but we were born as those who needed redemption. And this was his divine plan. Let's take this in remembrance of this gift to us. And the fruit of the vine. 
Christ's blood spilled for us, symbolizing the valuable life that was in it, that he sacrificed himself for us. And we take in this in remembrance of the promise that he said he would return when all that is evil, as the evil one is over this world now, will be brought to justice and will be made right. Let's take this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, we ask that we would be worthy. Lord, thank you for gifting us so much and pray for boldness to share who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.